This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Privacy campaigner Max Schrems has won another battle against Facebook. The court ground chamber hereby rules... The EU's top court on Thursday ruled in his favour and threw out a system used by the social network and thousands of other companies to send data to the US. The so-called EU-US Privacy Shield was set up in 2016 to protect the personal data of Europeans when it is sent across the Atlantic for commercial use. Its predecessor, dubbed Safe Harbour, was rejected by the same court in 2015, also following action by Schrems. On Thursday, the Court of Justice said the new system failed to protect EU citizens from snooping by US authorities. Schrems called the ruling perfect. I think one of the biggest takeaways is that we would need fundamental reform in US surveillance laws if US companies still want to have any kind of decent access to the European market. The Schrems II decision, a recent European Court of Justice ruling that declares the Privacy Shield program that facilitates data transfers between the European Union and the United States invalid, has major implications for modern commercial data-related activities, such as cross-border data transfers. The decision will reverberate in countries around the world, including Canada. For example, Canadian privacy law was found many years ago to meet the EU's adequacy standard, but the Schrems II decision may call that into question. Colin Bennett is a political science professor at the University of Victoria and one of Canada's leading privacy experts. He has written multiple books on privacy and surveillance and focuses on the development and implementation of privacy protection policies at both the domestic and international levels. He joins me on the podcast to discuss the Schrems II decision and what it means for both global data transfers and the future of Canada's privacy law framework. Colin, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. You're very welcome, Michael. Okay, it's a pleasure to have you. You've written some really interesting things about the Schrems decision, so you're an, really an ideal person to come on. And I want to talk about some of that writing, especially with respect to Canada in a minute. But before we do that, there's quite a lot to unpack with respect to the latest Schrems decision, everything from data transfers, privacy, surveillance, global trade. We can even think back to the Snowden revelations from years ago. So it's a little bit hard to know where to begin, but, but why don't we start generally with the issue around data transfers in the EU attic adequacy requirements, which of course gives rise to some of these issues around data transfers and uh, the Safe Harbor Agreement and ultimately, of course, the first Schrems decision. So if you can provide us with a bit of a basic background on the issues, that would be, I think, a good way to start. Yes, yeah, sure. Happy to. Um, let's go back to 2000, which was, of course, around the time that, that Pepita was passed. Um, and that's when the European Commission adopted a decision um, which, um, in fact, declared that the United States, through its safe harbor process, had an adequate um, level of protection. Um, and the safe harbor uh, process uh, allowed 
companies to subscribe voluntarily uh, to, in, to, to a set of principles in order to engage in cross-border uh, data transfer. Um, and it relied on a sort of a self-assessment, self-certification process. I've regarded it as a co-regulatory process, but with a regulatory stick that non-adherence to these principles would, could be unfair and deceptive trade practices and therefore could be regulated by the Federal Trade Commission. Now, that led to a complaint against Facebook by then uh, Austrian graduate student Max Schrems uh, to the Irish Data Protection Commissioner. And he said that, the, and he challenged the transfer of those data uh, to the US by Facebook on the grounds that US could not uh, protect his fundamental rights as a European citizen because of US surveillance laws. Two things happened. Firstly, the Irish Data Protection Commissioner essentially said, well, I don't have any jurisdiction here because the safe harbor agreement has already been declared adequate. Um, and Schrems then appealed that up to the uh, Court of Justice of the European Union. And to cut a long story short, the CJEU said that no, the uh, data protection authorities uh, do have an obligation to investigate complaints against transfers to the United States. And secondly, because the uh, US could not guarantee the fundamental rights of uh, European citizens because of its various surveillance programs revealed by Snowden and others, um, that the safe harbor agreement was invalid. So that uh, happened in 2015, and that lays the basis for the current series of decisions that have happened since that time. Okay, so, and just to back up even before 2000, European laws have limitations on data transfers. The, the requirement for those that don't have those rules uh, is that they have to meet adequacy standards and it's the EU that makes those kinds of decisions? That's right, yeah. So um, the Europeans' interests are that um, they do not want to see their laws and the rights of Europeans undermined by the processing of that data offshore, right? So they've developed over the years a very complex set of mechanisms for, guarantee, for trying to ensure that there's an adequate level of protection in other countries when, when those data data transferred elsewhere. Okay. And just to give an example, so Canada uh, meets those adequacy standards on the basis of our national privacy law? Yes, it does to the extent that the data is covered by PIPEDA. We don't have a jurisdictional adequacy determination, but to, to, to the extent that the data is covered by the protections in PIPEDA, then we have had that adequacy determination since 2002. Yeah. Okay, so we've got, we've got it. The U.S. doesn't have the equivalent of PIPEDA. They negotiate the safe harbor agreement. That's right. Schrems challenges the validity of that safe harbor agreement, arguing that it doesn't provide the appropriate protection. Yep. He wins uh, those arguments. What comes next? Well, then uh, the U.S. government, principally the Department of Commerce and the uh, European Commission, negotiated a new agreement. Uh, this was called the Privacy Shield, based on very similar principles, very similar fair information principles of the kind that you see in PIPEDA, but with somewhat better procedures for consumer complaints against companies and various redress mechanisms and so on. Um, and also with a mechanism to allow European citizens to challenge access to their data by US intelligence and law enforcement. And that was an office called the Privacy Shield Ombudsperson. 
um, located in the State Department, and which was designed to field requests from European DPAs. Um, Fine, from, sorry, just sorry, just to interrupt. DPAs being data protection. Data protection authorities. Yes, sorry. Um, from European citizens who feel that their data might have been accessed by. U.S. intelligence. And this ombudsperson was supposed to um, investigate um, where that data might have uh, landed um, in um, also with the U.S. inspectors general and report back to Europe as to whether or not U.S. law had been uh, abided by or breached. That mechanism was always considered very weak, very suspect, and not independent. And it's one of the key uh, reasons why I think in the Schrems II decision um, uh, we see the privacy shield invalidated. Okay. So the response is a renegotiated agreement. Renegotiation, right? yeah. Around 5,000 companies signed up. I have to say with various levels of due diligence. Some have you know, had established privacy management programs, others less so. But they signed up and they declared therefore publicly that they were abiding by this set of principles in Privacy Shield and that they also accepted that if they did not abide by those principles, uh, that they could be challenged as um, being engaged in unfair and deceptive trade practices and therefore to be regulated by the Federal Trade Commission. That's it in, its, in a nutshell. There are more complicated provisions, but that's about that's that's it. A co-regulatory model. Um, it's not. There's no obligation to sign up, but if you do, you you declare that you will abide by a set of legally binding principles. Okay. So thousands of companies do sign up for this privacy shield, right. but Shre but Shrems, no longer a graduate student, now uh, a well-known uh, right. advo advocate in the privacy world, launches yep. what becomes Shrems Two. Yes, that's right. Um, and he, in the meantime, establishes this international reputation, develops an NGO, and gets funding for this uh, NGO. It's called None of Your Business, NOYB, and um, challenges initially not the privacy shield, but the standard contractual clauses that Facebook was relying on to transfer data from Europe to the United States for processing. So he began another case in 2015, again to the Irish DPA, and the arguments were essentially the same. The, in this case, the standard contractual clauses that controllers in Europe and their processors were signing did not protect European fundamental rights from access by US law enforcement intelligence, um, especially when it's accessed by the famous uh, 702 program authorized by the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, FISA. The Irish DPA, there was a lot of twists and turns, so the Irish DPA again referred this to the Irish High Court, which then referred the case to the CJEU, the Court of Justice of the European Union, and that's the decision that came down last week on both the standard contractual clauses and the privacy shield. Along the way, Facebook makes the argument that, in fact, because the privacy shield had been negotiated and that it had signed up for the privacy shield, that, you know, its transfer was legal. So, in a way, the court was forced through this process to look not only at the standard contractual clauses, but also at the privacy shield. And so that's, that's what it did last week. 
Okay, it's interesting the way that both of those issues ultimately ended up before ultimately the converged. And there's some argument that that Facebook should have just stayed away from the privacy shield entirely, um, and that in fact by invoking the privacy shield, it sort of helped to throw it under the bus. Um, I, I, I don't know the, the accuracy of those, those assessments, but let's put it this way. I think the privacy shield was, was always considered, um, you know, an instrument, a, a vulnerable instrument under European law. Uh, and that if this decision had not come down now, it would have been challenged later on. But under this particular decision, it's also important to recognize that the, the substance of the privacy shield was not challenged. The principles of the privacy shield were not challenged. The model that it was based on was not challenged, you know, the, the sort of co-regulatory model. But what was challenged was the, um, the, the, the susceptibility of those transfers to access by U.S. law enforcement intelligence agencies um, and that's the thing that, that ultimately sank it. Okay. So the, the focal point very much on whether U.S. surveillance law so undermines the protections that Europeans would expect as part of data transfer. That's right. And particularly, and particularly those aspects of surveillance law, which are mass surveillance, dragnet surveillance, suspicionless, suspicionless surveillance, you know, the, the kind of thing you've written about as well. Right. Okay. So I, so what precisely did the, did the court say, both about the privacy shield, but then also, as you mentioned, the standard contractual clauses? Okay, I, I have three takeaways from this, and it, it's pretty much consistent with what others are saying, I think. First of all, the privacy shield is invalidated immediately. There's no grace period. Uh, there was a post indeed this morning by the European Data Protection Board which confirmed that. They don't have any uh, p- period in which they can um, adjust it. Um, it's invalid. And so to the extent that those 5,000 companies are relying on the privacy shield for legitimately importing data to the United States, that's now an illegal basis of transfer. Um, and, and therefore, um, you know, they've got to find some other legal mechanism. With respect to standard contractual clauses, the subject of the original complaint, the court said that they are still okay. They still constitute a legitimate basis for transfer, but with the important caveat that the exporter of the data and the importer of the data has to guarantee to that the laws in the jurisdiction that where the processing occurs do not conflict with provisions of the contract, and they do not, and 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 do not undermine European fundamental rights. And so any company that's reliant on standard contractual clauses, and that's not just American companies, but any company that imports data anywhere in the world, has to do a case-by-case analysis, has to look at all of the circumstances of the transfer, where it goes to, onward transfers, levels of encryption, and so on. Um, And if um, they believe that the... uh, European fundamental rights and the decision of this court cannot be abided by, then they have to inform the controller immediately. And if there's no way that that can be resolved, then the transfer has to be, be, be stopped and they have to inform the relevant data protection authority accordingly. And further to that, 
the DPAs cannot do nothing. This has been something that Schrems has been insistent upon over the years and which has irritated him. He's lodged a whole number of complaints to European DPAs and they've just sat on them. And the court is very, very clear that uh, data protection authorities not only have the right, they have the obligation to pursue these complaints and indeed to stop the transfer if they find that um, European rights are not being protected as a result of those transfers. There's a lot there, but I hope that's clear. <laughs> it is, and there is a lot there because, you know, based on that description, what were the implications of this decision extend far beyond certainly the privacy shield and, and arguably even beyond standard contractual clauses. I mean, you're speaking yes. to a, a ruling that has major implications for the enforcement of uh, of, of privacy law in Europe, data protection laws in Europe, that really put a positive obligation on enforcers essentially to do their job. Exactly, exactly right. Um, and sometimes they don't have the resources to do that. They do not have the the staff. They do not have the financial resources to investigate powerful companies like Facebook. And so one has to have a have a certain sympathy for you know institutions like the Irish DPA, which have been put into the middle of this this uh, this massive struggle. But nevertheless, that's what the law says. And further. People like Max Trems have uh, energized a generation of privacy advocates in Europe that are going to be extremely vigilant from now on about those transfers. In fact, Trems has already written to the Irish DPA saying, you know, what about it? This is illegal. Do your job. Stop the transfer. Um, as far as I know, he hasn't received a response. <laughs> Right. But that certainly highlights that uh, this is far from the end of the story. This in many ways represents the next chapter where it seems likely that we'll, we'll see more, ac more activity, more advocacy, yeah. and more, more cases because the courts made it clear that there needs to be action. And that in a sense creates incentives for those that want to see change to, to use this very powerful tool. Yes. And, and I think also it creates a certain um, alliance um, between the interests of the high-tech companies and that of privacy advocates because the, the, the companies that are relying on these instruments have been basically undermined by US surveillance law. Um, and so they haven't, you know, they can do all the due diligence they want. They can have the best privacy management program of anything. Um, but if their transfers are undermined by US surveillance laws that um, do not protect the fundamental rights of Europeans, there's not a lot they can do about it except change those laws. Right. Well, that's that's going to fall to politicians, of course, not necessarily to DPAs, much less the and advocates. Exactly. Yeah. Now, this the, you've, you've spoken about the major implications from a European law perspective, and obviously, there's, there's immediate implications for some of the U.S. companies that have been relying upon Privacy Shield. But one of the things I think is really interesting is you've written about the implications beyond the U.S. and the EU, and in particular, the implications from a Canadian perspective. Now, you mentioned off the top that Canadian law was found to, to meet the, or at least PIPEDA was found to meet the EU adequacy standard. Uh, let's, as a starting point, could that finding be revisited in light of these decisions? Well, it, it is being revisited. It has to be revisited. Under, under the general data protection regulation. Um, the law says that these uh, existing adequacy determinations, which are under the old European Union directive, um, and there's a number of those, not a lot, then they have to be reviewed every four years. 
so the four years was actually up this spring and there should have been is my understanding an assessment of canadian law at that time it hasn't happened yet uh, i think largely because of the pandemic but we're expecting that assessment to occur and along the way um our government has been providing annual updates to the commission on developments in canadian law um, broadly speaking, federal, provincial, case law, etc., so that the Commission has all of the information it needs to make a judgment about whether Canada continues to offer an adequate level of uh, protection. Um, but the standards change in a couple of respects. First of all, we have the General Data Protection Regulation now rather than the directive. And as you know, the GDPR contains a whole bunch of provisions that were not in the original directive. And secondly, because of these decisions in the United States, the focus is now uh, squarely on government access to commercial data and and the European Commission we know has been very interested in the protections that we in Canada afford to these uh, to these data um, by government agencies by intelligence um, to see whether it's any better than that's provided by the United States right well I mean all of this suggests that the the adequacy findings on fairly shaky ground in Canada both because of the decisions and because European law has changed whereas Canadian law uh, has barely moved in the couple of decades since that adequacy yeah. finding um, why don't we speak though to the surveillance side so if the concern is around government access to this kind of information how would Canada fit into this sort of analysis where there'd ever be a case involving the relationship between Canada and the EU well, there might be if there's a relevant complaint in, in Europe. Um, to summarize, I mean, the concerns about U.S. surveillance are, are in two categories. On the one hand, there's the, there's the sort of front-end authorization of surveillance processes that go on, you know, whether or not there's probable cause or reasonable suspicion and, and so on, and, and whether or not it's, there's appropriate judicial authorization for that surveillance. That's one thing, and that was found to be wanted. On the other hand, however, there's the sort of back-end redress mechanisms. And this was also found wanting in the United States. But um, as a result of the changes to our surveillance laws recently, we've set up the National Security and Intelligence Review Agency, NSIRA, which does have um, a greater level of independence, certainly than the mechanism in the United States. Um, and I think the question for the Europeans, and indeed for us, would be whether the procedures under that agency, which can receive complaints not only from Canadians, but also from non-Canadians, I understand, whether that would provide the kind of independent redress mechanism um, that would satisfy an adequacy requirement in the ways that the SHIELD Ombudsman in the United States did not. Now, I don't know the answer to that question, but it's going to require some, um, some careful analysis, I think. Um, one other thing that comes out of this decision is that redress against law enforcement and surveillance does not necessarily mean judicial redress. Uh, all it means is an independent tribunal that is at sufficient arm's length from government um, with all of the kind of due process guarantees that you would expect. So that any European who feels he or she has been um, illegally monitored has some rights uh, in Canada in order to um, uh, um, uh, pursue 
his or her rights and therefore to ensure that the fundamental rights under European law are protected. I think those are the, the detailed questions going forward that are going to form a, um, an intra, a, a central part of Canada's continuity adequacy assessment. So some amount of uncertainty. We're we're potentially in better shape given some of our structure than than the U.S., yeah. but by no means a guarantee that uh, we That's would right. meet that adequacy standard. Is there anything else that the Canadian government could be doing? Do you think to proactively address what are clearly now some emerging global concerns around data transfers? Well, I think you know, I think that what this decision does is add urgency to both PIPEDA reform and Privacy Act reform. Um, the, the 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 protections for governmental agencies are now squarely in focus in a way that they were not back in 2002 when the original adequacy decision was made. So the Privacy Act will be under focus and the question of whether or not individuals, the rights of individuals under the Privacy Act. I think everything's sort of fair game now. Um, and so, yes, um, reform of PIPEDA and the Privacy Act, but, but frankly, we needed to have done that anyway for good Canadian reasons, whether or not, you know, the Europeans require it. Um, I think also I've, I've written that one other uh, um, thing that we might want to look at, and I think we need to have a, a, a longer conversation about this in Canada, is whether or not there will be uh, any mileage in Canada acceding to Convention 108 Plus, the Council of Europe Convention, which is... In, in effect, the only thing that looks like a multilateral international treaty on data protection, and over the years it's been overshadowed a bit by the institutions in the European Union, um, but, but um, I think we should have a longer conversation about whether that could uh, assist us in positioning Canada as a adequate privacy protective jurisdiction. And thirdly, I think there's opportunities economically here. I mean, you, you've written about this in the past, you know, to promote Canada as a safe place, a place for safe processing, uh, for cloud computing and so on. Um, if um, American companies are faced with the choice of either, um, uh, uh, you know, if assuming American law does not change, which is not going to in the near future, then they have to find these workarounds for their standard contractual clauses or their binding corporate rules, which are going to be very, very difficult to find. Or they may have to uh, ensure that the data continues to reside in Europe, which for various reasons they may not be wanting to do. Under those circumstances, a possible option would be to process the data in another adequate jurisdiction. And Canada is the obviously one that obviously the one that comes to mind, um, at least an adequate decision jurisdiction for now. So there may be things that our government can do to to promote Canada as a as a safe place for processing, in contrast to our neighbours to the south. That's interesting. I mean, positioning Canada to take advantage, in effect, of, of some yeah. of the disparate approaches that are out there with a real opportunity from an economic perspective for many to use Canada as the place. But uh, it sounds like when you talk about the need for domestic reform on two statutes, potential participation in an international agreement on this stuff, there is a lot of work to be done before we reach that point. 
Yeah, but, but you know, the preparatory work has been done, Michael. You know, uh, it's not as if the government does not have, you know, um, enough advice and consultation about, you know, what should be done to PIPEDA uh, and the Privacy Act. Uh, this has been going on for a long time. So I think that uh, I think there's some real urgency here and I think there's a real opportunity. Yeah, no, certainly the, the urgency issue is one I think uh, many of us have been focusing on for some time. And this, yeah. in, in many ways, perhaps provides the, a, a real opportunity to say, you know what, the, the moment is now to act. Uh, speaking of acting and, and what comes next, uh, why don't we close with a question about what, what do you think comes next with respect to the specific case in the U.S. and the EU where so much of this data transfer issue kind of resides? Do you expect to see a, another patchwork compromise, a SHREMS 3, or is there some other potential solution out there? Well, there could be, I suppose. I mean, I think the first thing to look for is more detailed guidance from the Europeans about what companies need to do in order to strengthen their standard contractual clauses. We've already seen a little bit of guidance from the European Data Protection Board, but I think there's going to have to be a consistent approach because so far the messaging from the DPAs has been uh, inconsistent, to say the least. Could there be a privacy shield too or a, some other name? I I wouldn't bet against it. I think there'll be government-to-government discussions about the way forward. Um, But I'm not hopeful that anything can be negotiated which really gets around the fundamental impasse here, which is you have a a clash of constitutions, which which no statute is going to be able to resolve, and certainly no contract. I mean, you have a situation where the Europeans have this fundamental right to privacy, which has to be protected wherever the data is processed. And you have in the United States a, um, a surveillance regime, which you know has come under increasing criticism in the United States and around the world. But, but you also have a serious decisions by the United States Supreme Court, which kind of undermines any redress that Americans or any other citizen might have for that matter against, against these practices. So there's a fundamental impasse here. Um, so I would expect to see, um, you know, companies have got to look at their, 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 their contracts. They've got to find ways. They've got to assess how to continue to import the data. I think you'll see a lot more emphasis on strong encryption as a way around this. I think you'll see probably the negotiation of stronger binding corporate rules in perhaps sectors that have not had them so far. Um, But I think you'll also find some more uh, regulation in Europe and more um, pressure by um, advocates to actually stop transfers and for DPAs to... um, exercise their muscle um uh i think i think that's what's going to happen it's going to be messy and um um you know the, the battles will continue it certainly sounds like that i mean this this area yeah. has really is really now marked by just such a clash of politics of policy of differing laws uh, and and sorting through all of that and coming to some kind of consensus or at least some sort of compromise is clearly going to be a, an enormous yeah. challenge Colin it's 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 a challenging area and you've done a terrific job of, of unpacking it for us and, and taking a look at what may lie ahead uh, and so thank you for that and thank you so much for joining me on the podcast thank you Michael it was a great pleasure That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. 
Follow the podcast on Twitter at LawBitesPod or Michael Geist at MGeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.